I listened to the following, the bit that's coming up, and I think what the guy is getting at, you know, the guy's me, obviously, but it's, it's me coming from a certain perspective, you know, and I've even given myself a, a joke name for that purpose, you know, the sporty monk, which is a joke, you know, don't take me seriously, it's a joke. All right, but the guy is saying uh, that faith has some validity, I think, in as much as it can be useful for you. you know, if you engage in faith, if you play the game of faith, it can, it can be useful to you. I think that's what he's saying. There's numerous examples of that in history. And the one that always pops into my head is Alexander the Great, who thought he was Achilles. You know? His mother told him from when he was a baby, I'm sure she did, Olympia, uh, you're a god. You're a god, Alexander. And uh, Greek boys, you know, what they, you know what it's like. Those Greek boys. If you're a Greek girl, you know all about that, maybe. And um, you're a god, Alexander. And he had faith that he was a god. Yeah, maybe he did. Look, he had Aristotle as a teacher, and he knew about Plato and all that sort of stuff. So he probably knew alternative uh, truths with respect to that. But let's just say, you know, he... he saw himself, you know, he thought, he imagined Achilles was real and that he was the next Achilles, and he had faith in that, you know. So you might say, oh, come on, think logically, uh, Alexander, you, um, you had Aristotle as a teacher, you know how to think logically, uh, but he might have said, no, you know what, I'll go with my mum. We boys, we like to go with our mums. And, um, and he said, I'll go with my mum. I like the idea that I'm a god. You know, I have faith in that. And he said, look, I'm also a scientist, you know. Um, as I go conquering, um, I, I uh, collect yeah, little samples of flora and fauna, and I send them back to Aristotle so that he can classify them and all that. I'm a scientist. But you know what, I think I'm Achilles as well. You know, I can wear two hats here. So, Alexander, you know, let's imagine that he's a man of faith, but he's a man of science as well, you know, and, um, you know, and, and he uses whichever one is useful to him at any given point in time. And uh, when he is, uh, when he's uh, launching himself into battle against mad elephants over in India, uh, he... His head is full of the idea that he is Achilles, and he is fearless, and he he just goes in and and takes down an elephant all by himself, you know, um, a mad elephant charging, you know, and he's Achilles, and and he managed to pull that off, you know, it's amazing, you know. I don't know if he actually took down an elephant himself. He probably did, knowing Alexander. All right, because he's Achilles. He's a god. Um, the, you know, uh, and that's as he's charging into battle. Because if he was just relying on science at that point in time, that probably wouldn't serve him well. Um, because he would do the calculations and say, I'm probably a dead man here. No, I'll go with faith. You know, it's more useful to me. This is a utilitarian approach. Um, but then on other occasions, you know, days before the battle... He's being very scientific, you know. He's a master strategist, and he's thinking, "What are all the, what are all the odds?" And you know, 
what are the tactics I'm going to use, you know, how, calculating how many men he's going to lose. And even back then he's calculating, yeah, I'll probably get killed as well, but let's just, um, let's play the odds here. And um, oh, I can feel that godlike sort of feeling coming on even as I'm strategizing here. I'm looking forward to this. And, you know, he, that, that's where his eyes are rolling back in his head and he's just crossing over from science to faith. But the point is, science and faith are not in conflict here. They're working together in the head of Alexander the Great. They're not in conflict. It's not that not an either-or sort of thing. You know, he's not having a fight in his head. He's using everything that there is to offer in the world to eventually become the god his mother told him he was. First of July, 2019, brand new year, uh, financial year. Box Hill, en route. 30 minutes, enough time for an episode. All right then, uh, the, uh, ignore the previous episode. That was just a wild card episode. The ignorance of Kanye West, you know. Uh, and the episode was all about the idea that He's not ignorant, you know, he's having a red-hot crack at, uh, at thinking, as far as I can. I think he's a philosopher. Um, kind of like him. I didn't say I liked his politics, but I kind of like him. I like the fact that he's thinking. Uh, it's better than not thinking. Um, so, uh, the, yeah, but the, the episode before that, well, this episode that I'm about to speak now is part two of that episode because I got onto politics and politics is against my zen uh, actually I might not make it all the way to Box Hill with this um, episode because I can see my iPad is at 10% not that I'm looking well I was stopped then when I looked at the iPad I'm driving again now and I'm not looking at the iPad both hands on the wheel uh, if you're a policeman listening is it still illegal? I mean, I pressed record before I started driving, so I'm looking at the road and speaking. I don't know if that's a bad thing or not. Uh, oh, uh, okay. Now, uh, so, uh, and if you want to know where I am, just for the fun of it, I'm just going past the, uh, you know, the State Library in Melbourne. It's a beautiful morning. Uh, all right. So. The episode before that, that uh, was about politics. Now, um, I could probably play that episode again in little snippets and make an episode of every five minutes of that. Yeah. Um, so when you listen to that episode, you know, you would be, you know, you're very likely to think, if you listened to that episode, you're very likely to think, oh, Damien, you only left that, you know, that thought wasn't quite right, and you only half thought out that thought, you know, and all that sort of stuff. I know. <laughs> but, you know, I'm, I'm not here to be comprehensive. I'm here to throw up ideas. I'm not here to evangelise. I'm just here to throw up ideas. I'm not here to put my thoughts into your head have no interest in doing that have your own thoughts couldn't care less about your thoughts you know rather don't care about you at all 
Isn't that a terrible thing? No wonder I've got no listeners. All right, I'm here to talk to myself. Um, and my kids, maybe. And my mum. Hi, mum. Right. So what did I talk about in that episode? Well, I started to talk about politics, all right. And um, not about what your politics should be or what my politics are, but what politics is. You know, And the central sort of... My zen, I think, you know, because I've got this zen I'm developing. I said way back at the start of these podcasts that I'm going to um, engage in these podcasts with zen swagger. Yeah. You know, it'd be interesting. I, I might go back and listen to my first episode and see whether my style of speaking is evolving or not. Uh, I feel that uh, I might be relaxing into it by now. Um, you know, and I might go back and think, oh, that's very halty. You know, and, um, and I'm developing a style of speaking too, uh, which is, you know, not the same as the way I speak in real life. I don't speak with this much, uh, you know, um, melody in my voice. Um, my voice, you know, I, I would not speak, hello, brother, how are you? You know, I would never say that, but this is the way I speak on podcasts. So I'm developing a podcast voice. All right. Now my zen, I'm, I'm starting to get to the bottom of my zen, because I said I had zen swagger way back at the start of these episodes, but I thought I'd work out what that was as I went along. I like to do that. I once invented a character called the sporty monk, and I said, I am now the sporty monk. You know, that was a kind of zen thing, a little game I was playing with my goddaughter, you know, um, where I, I took on a new personality, you know, to improve myself in life, you know. And it actually worked, you know. And to a certain extent, you know, if she had asked ask me, what's a sporty mug? I said, I have no idea. Uh, I, I'm just going to find out as I go along. You know? um, so it's the idea of declaring yourself something. I am the sporty mug, you know. Or I have Zen swagger. And people saying, oh yeah, outline what that means. You know, write down, you know, get the whiteboard out. And dot point, you know, get the butcher's paper out. And brainstorm words that, you know, make resolutions, you know, brainstorm what you mean by, with this resolution that you're making to be a sporty monk, you know, or to have Zen swagger, explain your Zen, you know, give us your plan, you know, and, um, and to that I would say no, because not getting out the butcher's paper is part of the Zen, and I said, what the hell are you talking about? not getting out the whiteboard is part of my zen, not dot pointing, not even, not even defining what I mean to even myself is part of the zen, they, they would just say that's stupid, but it works for me, yeah. uh, so, sporty monk, and uh, actually that's the character I've made um, as the author of these podcasts, if you look, not that you notice these things, okay, so my Zen swagger, I'm, I, I think I'm getting to the bottom of it. And it goes like this. And this may not be my character in real life. I'm, I'm inventing this character, you know, for the purposes of this podcast. I've got other characters in other podcasts. Some of them are complete bastards, you know. Yeah. One of them loves Bill Clinton. Oh, you know. <laughs> Barack Obama. Yeah. That guy's a real bastard. <laughs> All right, 
Now, this, um, with the, my Zen swagger in the, in these, uh, you know, sporty monks, Zen swagger goes like this. Um, science, for example. And I've mentioned this before, but I like repeating myself. I like repeating myself. I like repeating myself. Ah, dead joke. Um, science, for example, if I was to think about science, you know, I wouldn't, you know, if, uh, I wouldn't speak about, you know, um, saying science is be better than religion because, you know, not into that, not into that, you know. Um, I would say this is what I think science is, you know, and, you know, and I might think, um, well, let me think what I would think. I would say that we humans have a very, and it would appear this is the case, you know, even with my limited um, perspective on the universe, because there are many things I cannot detect with my meagre senses, you know, my sight, my hearing, my powers of logic, you know, all these things are very, very limited. Like my eyes, you know, I feel like I'm looking at everything, but there's many, you know, I am only looking at things, you know, radiation, let's say, you know, radiation, because that's what, light, you know, I'm looking at um, radiation, you know, light, um, that occupies a very small portion of the overall um, frequencies, you know, wavelengths um, of radiation coming into my eyes, you know. I'm only looking at a very small sort of section of the overall spectrum, you know, um, because, you know, uh, there's red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet, you know, I can see all that, but there is all sorts of, uh, there are all sorts of frequencies way beyond ultraviolet that I can't see and way to the left of red that I can't see. You know, microwaves and x-rays, I can't see them. My eyes cannot see them, you know. Now, I, I develop instruments in science, you know, this is what science is about, to him, so that I can see more to the left and right, all right, um, you know, uh, kind of indirectly, but the point is, I'm still only seeing um, some things, you know. I can I can detect microwaves, you know, now, even though back in ancient times people couldn't detect those because they were relying only on their eyes, you know. Yeah, and then, and then the priest said, ah, yes, but I detect the microwaves. No, you didn't. No, you don't, you know. <laughs> um... <coughs> The priest says that only after microwaves are invented, of course. He didn't nominate it beforehand, you know. Um, and my ears, you know, they're picking up other wavelengths, you know, a different type of sort of um, incoming, um, you know, it's, it's waves in air, you know, and all that sort of thing. But my ears can't hear what a dog hears, you know. And we... Um, and we develop instruments to try and improve that. But the point is, um, we're still only seeing some things about the universe. We can only detect some things. Yeah. So, 
Um, and I could go on and on and on, you know, um, how, how much we can see um, with our microscopes, you know, or our electron microscopes, how far we can go down, you know. Um, but, you know, there's a whole world that is smaller than we can detect, even with our instruments, you know. The smallest things we can see with the naked eye is bad enough, and we think, oh, wow, at least we've got microscopes now, and electron microscopes, and a few other things too, so that we can see very, very small. But, you know, we're still just scratching the surface, probably, aren't we? Um, so, bottom line is um, science. You know, if I was to think of science, I would say, well, um, you know, as a scientist, and I think we're all scientists to one degree or another. We're all scientists. The minute you experiment with something, you're a scientist. Yeah, You don't have to be clever to be a scientist. You have to be just willing to be a scientist. That's all. Um, I remember an episode on The Simpsons, you know, where uh, Homer Simpson, well, he might not be a scientist because I think there was a tub of hot oil or something and maybe there was something in that oil um, that he wanted to grab. Maybe there was a gold coin down there. You know, it's a long time ago since I've seen the episode, but just imagine a vat of hot oil and a gold coin in there. And Homer Simpson reaches his hand in and it burns him and he goes, ouch, and pulls his hand out. And then he puts his hand in, because he still wants the gold coin. So he puts his hand in again, ouch. And then he does it again, ouch, 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 you know, over and over again, not learning from the experience. But most people, everyone but Homer, you know, funny how they called him Homer, you know, <laughs> the, the, you know, the source of all wisdom in the Western world was called, was Homer. <laughs> the mythical Homer, who wrote many words, made many poems. But Homer, um, you know, which might be a collection of people, you know, uh, it's an oral history of a whole group of people, Greeks, you know, who um, who develop an oral history and adjust it over time and all that sort of stuff. And we can't name them all. Um, Yes, um, so, um, yeah, I just had to press the red button so that I didn't have to take that off. I actually stopped. I'm very conscious of that, you know, because I'm not using devices whilst I'm driving. Um, okay, <sighs> you have missed a phone call. That's okay. All right, what was I talking about? Um, oh, yes, yeah, science. Um, and... Um, Yes, Homer. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you got that joke. I don't have to develop that any further. Um, and um, so uh, we're all scientists, you know, because we all use trial and error, for example, you know. Um, but people who are more into science um, go further than trial and error. You know, they use the scientific method, for example. They develop a method. But the point is about science gee, this podcast might end up just about science, might it? But knowing me, it won't stay that way. But then again, I might. All right, let's keep going and see if it makes a whole episode just talking about science. Um, so, uh, my zen is such that if I was to talk about science, um, 
I would, um, you know, I, I would first note that I have limited capacity to detect things in the universe and maybe beyond and also limited capacity to process that information you know um, and the fact that I even use words like information might even be another limiting factor you know what I mean um, there might be things beyond information like feelings and spiritualism and all that sort of stuff but the point is um, I am a foggy thing, you know, a foggy thing. I'm making that up. I know what I mean, but I'll work it out in a second. It means um, I'm living, I'm living in the world, driving along in my little box with wheels on it, and everything looks pretty clear, you know. I've, 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 I've got beautiful eyesight and all that sort of stuff, so I can see all the trees with what I think are perfect clarity and all that sort of thing. And I feel like my, you know, I'm listening to that bus going by and with, you know, perfect clarity. But there are many things, I can't see those leaves perfectly, you know, you know, on the trees going past. If I could see them perfectly, I'd be looking into their molecular structure from here on the freeway, even though they're, you know, um, on, the side, on, the, on the sides of the road. I'd be looking more clearly. I'm just getting a vague, vague, macro idea of the look of those leaves, you know, on those trees, and so on. Okay. Um, if I had perfect eyesight, there's a van in front of me with darkened windows at the back. If I had perfect eyesight, I could see through those darkened windows, you know, because I, and, um, because surely the person driving that van um, is giving off some sort of radiation, you know, heat sort of thing and light you know um, and some of those light rays surely off that person are coming through the back of that van into my eyes but because so many other light rays are coming off the um, off the darkened windows of the back of the van I can't what I call see him okay so my my perspective my ability to detect to detect things in the universe because um, is limited um, so and I think the whole of science works like that um, what we do is we perhaps observe that even before we start to do science we are engaging in that activity with an extremely um, rough set of instruments Okay, how does that sound? Set of instruments. And the instruments being our senses, our five senses, you know, um, eyesight, hearing, and all that sort of thing. Um, and our analytical tools, you know, our brain, you know, which is very limited. Um, our brain is very, you know, compared to the perfect genius in, let's say, Plato's ideal world, you know, our brains are massively limited. Um, there might be a super logic beyond logic that we have never even thought of yet. 
you know, we like to say, oh, we have logic, you know, such that, you know, we can define um, that, you know, the idea of, um, you know, if all cats have four legs, right, even though we know that not all cats have four legs, but we're able to entertain the logic that if all cats have four legs, you know, we're even able to ask that question knowing it's not true. Um, if all cats have four legs and I have a cat, then my cat has four legs. You know, we're able to play games like that, which is, you know, beautiful logic. Um, uh, but, you know, there might be a super logic we've never even imagined yet, which is beyond our ken, as the Scottish say. Um, okay, so science, with science, what we kind of do with science is we say, right, we're starting with um, a set of blunt instruments being our senses and our powers of analysis via our brains. You know, where we have information incoming in, um, into our brains via our senses and then the brain processes that information and all of those instruments are rough as guts, you know. And then, you know, we get, we get a little bit cleverer than that. We make all sorts of instruments um, beyond that. You know, I always say the, the instrument I like is the front-end loader, you know. Like, imagine you're a, a kid and you're digging in the sandpit and you've got hands, you know, and you're dig, digging um, in the, in the, um, the sandpit. Um, and, um, and then, you know, grown-ups have the front-end loader, you know, which has got this great big arm. You know, you're in the machine and you're controlling this great big arm that comes out and digs great big whacks of dirt bigger than you could ever pick up with your own hands. You know, I always think that's like a, 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 a um, you know, and, uh, you're giving yourself false arms, you know. And I think modern cartoon, what do they call them, Transformers? Extend that idea, you know, I've, I've, I've heard of those. I never watched a Transformers movie. But, you know, you've got this little guy inside a big machine and it's got big arms, you know, and strong arms too and big legs and all that sort of stuff. All right, and and, and he can even turn himself into an aeroplane and fly, you know, and all that sort of thing. All right, but the point is, even if you were a Transformer, even if you were a Transformer, um, you've still got limited powers, you know. So science is about this machine, which is a human, who is, is a pretty clever machine, you know, from our perspective, who makes other machines so that it can detect even things that are beyond its own limited senses. But even with those machines, the powers of detection and the powers of analysis remain limited. Okay, so science is really, what is science? Science is um, the act, let's say, act of seeing how much we can detect with our with a set of limited um, instruments, blunt instruments. Okay, so it's like, all right, we've got a set of blunt instruments, microscopes, electron microscopes, all those sorts of things, you know. Um, we've got a set of blunt instruments, and science is a game, you know. Um, you know, and we've got eyes and ears and all that sort of stuff, and we've got 
certain a certain level of intellect, you know. Um, science is a game of how much sense can you make out of the universe using that blunt set of instruments. That's the game of science, you know. That's the game of science. So it's nothing to do with finding truth. It's finding how much apparent truth there is that apparent, you know, apparent truth that you can detect with a toolbox full of blunt instruments, you know. All right, I'll give you a toolbox full of blunt instruments. Off you go. See how much you can detect with that. And you come back and you say, all right, I have detected the following. This is the game of science. I have detected the following, you say. Um, and I have detected that force equals mass times acceleration, you know, and that speed equals distance over time. You know, and I've even gone a little bit further um, recently and detected that um, as far as I can tell with my set of blunt instruments, I'll have to ignore that as well, um, as far as I can detect with my set of blunt instruments, um, we cannot go faster than the speed of light. Okay, so, and, and you know, person you're bringing that information back to you wow that's really clever and you say yeah yeah, I know it sounds clever but it's only clever to you because you're like me you know we're still at the blunt instrument level you know um, and the other guy says oh yeah I keep forgetting that I keep thinking I'm you know that we're getting smarter yeah we are you know but not much you know this uh, we still only know one percent of everything there is to know in fact we don't even know what percentage we know of everything there is to know. It might be an infinitesimally small percentage of everything there is to know that we know, you know. Um, this, you know, this universe might be just one of an infinite number of parallel universes and we only know about this universe and further only a little bit about this universe. So, if there's an infinite number of parallel universes, all with different sort of characters, um, then everything we know, let's say that, let's just for fun say that's 1% of everything there is to know about this universe, which is ridiculous. Alright. What we know is 1 divided by 100 divided by infinity wow you know an extremely large number the, the word infinity is a very difficult one to get one's head around so I, I won't use the word infinity um, you know because even I don't I, I, I can't get my head around that word um, one divided by a hundred divided by an extremely big number you know approaching infinity <laughs> um, which means we know, essentially, zero, you know. So you can think about it that way. All our science has um, taken us to a position where we know nothing, you know, in the scheme of things. All right. Hello, God. How you doing? You know. um, right. Now, um, 
so that might be science. All right, so we've got a limited, say, uh, we've got a small number of blunt instruments and we come back to, you know, and we've been sent away by our professor, you know, our science professor. And I'm a student and he sent me off and he's said to me, off you go, see what you can detect with your blunt set of instruments. I'll give you just a set of blunt instruments because it's all I've got to give you, sorry. Um, then I come back and I say, all right, these are all the truths. These are all, this is as much truth as I can detect with my blunt set of instruments. I know I'm repeating myself a lot, but um, this is my style. And sometimes I think by repeating myself, it, it seeps into my own head more by osmosis. If I repeat myself 15 times, I find it sort of, come, you know, the ideas forming up nicely in my head, much more so than if I only said it once to myself. But that's just me. It may not be you, but it's me. All right, so that's that. And then I come back to my master, you know, my professor, the, my god. You know, professors are gods. Um, do you know, I think sometimes professors feel like gods. Um, not all professors. You know, we're a bit unfair on professors and teachers and things like that. Sometimes I imagine there must be some professors, you know, and they get a whole new batch of young ones, you know. And the professors might be my age, 56, you know. And the new year starts and it's fresh meat. That doesn't sound very good, but you know what I mean, intellectually. And um, and they all come in and they're all wide-eyed and, um, and they're young, you know, and they're ready to be impressed. And you are the guy who is going to impress them. You're going to be a god, you know, because um, you've, you know, you've been practicing on group after group after group for 30 years, refining your godlike style. And you know that in the next three years, you know, uh, during which you will have this little group of students that you can take their, um, you know, their open and trusting minds any way you want to take them. My God, that would feel like being a God. Uh, but, you know, surely there's many teachers, you know, that's not fair on teachers. I, uh, I, I still remember all my favourite teachers and they made my life better. I love teachers. I hate teachers. I love teachers, you know. Um, depends which teacher. And, um, and so, um, uh, so I, I come back to my teacher, who I actually love. I love this teacher. This hypothetical, fictitious, pretend teacher I'm imagining right now in my head. I come back to my teacher. He's given me all these instruments. He set me off on a field experiment, on a project. And I've come back with my results and he said, you have a lovely set of truths there, he said. But guess what? Um, we've just invented a new kind of um, a new kind of microscope, which I didn't give you before. Here it is. Off you go again, and come back again later. So I go off with my new microscope, and um, and I detect a couple of other things. And I come back to him, and I said, I've got a slightly um, a slightly altered version of the previous truth. And he said, That's good too. All right. Truth 2.0, we shall call that. 
And this is science, you know. A lot of religious people sort of think that scientists um, think that, you know, science proposes a whole lot of truths in opposition to the truths that are got at via theology, you know. But it's not the case at all. Um, scientists, true scientists, are not... Um, are not coming up with truths in opposition to faith. They are ignoring faith. They're not playing the same game. True scientists are not even thinking about faith. You know, they've been, they're ignoring you, priests. You know, it's not a grand fight between you and the scientists. You know, it's not a holy war. They're ignoring you. It's a very different thing. You're playing different games, you know. Faith and science are not in opposition to each other. They're different games. Okay, that's the way I see it anyway, in my limited, foggy uh, perspective, you know. Um, but, um, so, you know, uh, so uh, the scientist just, you know, is just returning a set of truths with small t. Uh, uh, not truths with a capital T, but truths with a lowercase t. Um, you know, and the science acknowledges and, and, and knows that these are only truths built on a limited perspective, you know, limited powers of detection by blunt instruments and uh, foggy powers of analysis, all right? Um, and they know that their powers of perception are limited. And they say these are the truths from a foggy person. These are foggy truths brought to you by a person with a foggy mind, you know. He can only see things vaguely. You know, he thinks he's looking at leaves on the trees clearly, but he's not seeing right into the leaves. And even when he has instruments, you know, and he puts the leaves under a microscope and all that sort of thing, he only sees it down to, you know, a subatomic level at best, you know. Um, he still can't see any further, deeper than that into the leaf, you know, and all that sort of stuff. He still can't see the nature of the leaf. So, when a science comes up with a set of rules or laws or truths, they're lowercase r rules and lowercase l laws and lowercase t truths, all right, that tend to serve them well, right? Because just like they are detecting um, all these um, items in the universe with a blunt instrument, um, they are also interacting with all those items in a blunt instrument, so, with blunt instruments, you know. So, um, you detect that um, a rock is hard. You make up words even and say that rock is hard. We are going to say it that it is a truth that that rock is hard and that that um, marshmallow is soft, right? Scientifically, we are going to come up with words and we're going to, uh, you know, um, use the words hard and soft and, um, and we are going to come up with a law of physics that says rocks are hard and and marshmallows are soft now 
is that a you know science says that's a you know a small t truth and people say yes but you know that might be your limited perspective and you say yeah i know uh but it's also useful to me you know let's just park that thought that i might have a completely wrong idea of that rock and that marshmallow and that essentially they're both the same thing because they're made of the same things you know they're all made of protons and electrons and all that sort of thing. identical um, objects in a way you know at a subatomic level they're all made of quarks and strangelings and changelings you know they're, they're all made of the same stuff deep down but I'm going to call one of them as a scientist I'm going to call one of them hard and one of them soft all right and yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm even going to come up with ideas why one is hard and one is soft from my limited perspective, and that is, you know, the way those atoms are sort of bonding together and all that sort of stuff, you know. Um, it's just the way they're bonding together that makes one hard and one soft. But as a scientist, I am going to say as a small t truth um, that a rock is hard and a marshmallow is soft, okay? And then someone might come along and um, they might have a marshmallows are hard religion, you know, and rocks are soft, you know what I mean? So there might be a religion out there um, where it has two commandments. Marshmallows are hard and rocks are soft. And that's the commandments, you know, of this holy religion. And, um, but the scientists would say, listen, you know, I'm not going to say, you know, that's your truth, you know, um, because you've decided that's your truth and you're going to, um, you're going to, observe the properties of a rock and our properties of a marshmallow and you're going to you know somehow you're going to make that rock soft and that marshmallow hard that's okay right that's your game that's your game you know and if that person truly believes they'll they'll find a way to make that rock soft and that marshmallow hard you know by altering the definition of the word hard and the word soft and all that sort of stuff you know there are games you can play but if you start with what you want to believe and work backwards you can make it happen right that's theology that's theology okay um so but science will say listen we are just going to um use what we call the scientific method and we're going to you know um call that rock hard and that marshmallow soft and the only reason we're going to do that is not to oppose you theologians we're not going to oppose you we just you know within our limited perspective we are going to um we are going to make it a truth right it doesn't have to be a capital t truth it doesn't have we may change our minds down the track if we discover something else you know um like armor no <laughs> yeah um you know such that if someone threw a rock at you and someone threw a marshmallow at you, neither one of them is going to hurt. Now that's a joke. Um, all right, so, um, but we are going to say that um, from a scientific perspective, you know, that sort of truth, not a religious perspective, that sort of truth, um, a rock, we are going to say, as a law of physics, is hard, and a marshmallow is soft, and and the religious person might say, but what, you know, so, but why? And, it's like, and we're going to say, because it's useful to us. Because if someone throws a, a marshmallow at us, we're just going to smile, not move, 
and smirk and let that marshmallow hit us, you know, because we're going to use our science for our own benefit. You know, we're not going to bother even ducking, you know, if someone throws a marshmallow at us. We're not going to even be frightened. We're going to say, ha ha, you know, and, but if someone throws a rock at us, we're going to duck. All right, so we've used, we, the, why are we engaging in science? Because it's useful in a practical way, all right? And we might find other uses beyond that as well, you know. Science may alter our culture and our culture may alter our politics and our, you know, you know and, and, and that's the sort of thing that happened in the Enlightenment, but that's a whole broader topic. Let's keep this simple. All right. And the theologian says, you are doing that in opposition to us. And we say, no, we're doing it because it's useful to us. That's all, you know. And, um, and you know, another example of that would be that science, you know, will, um, you know, a long time ago, science decided to really get stuck into analysing lightning, you know, and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, what's his name flew a kite, was that Benjamin Franklin or whatever, and, you know, let lightning hit it and then, you know, let the lightning, let the electricity come down the wire and, you know, and and it powered up his laptop. You know, I think that happened with Benjamin Franklin. And he said, oh, wow, okay, I've harnessed electricity. You know, that sort of thing can happen. And so... Um, and this is very similar to the rock and the snowball. I'm not sure whether my... I'm making these analogies up as I go along on the spot. So if they're not good analogies, make up your own, you know. Just because my analogies might be bad doesn't mean you throw out the ideas, you know. We're not on social media here, you know, where if you use a bad analogy, um, person will, you know, people will say, ha-ha, we just saw that your analogy is rubbish, um, so your whole point falls over. You know, I'm sort of proposing, if I ever give it a, a bad metaphor or a bad analogy or whatever, just make up one that's better, you know. <laughs> you do some work. <coughs> but anyway, so electricity, you know, a little bit like the rock and the snowball. Um, scientists um, harness electricity via the same sort of reasoning, you know, and they sort of say, look, our comprehension of electricity is x y and z and we think we can harness it we think we are harnessing it because you know our our foggy eyesight our blurry eyesight even if you've got 20 20 vision it's blurry because you can't see deep into the leaves you can't see the atoms you know you can't see to the subatomic level you can't see to the sub subatomic level um can't see the changelings and the strangelings um so we are going to say that we are, you know, as far as we can tell, we have detected um, electricity and we've harnessed electricity and, you know, um, and that was a direct current we, we were able to harness because um, the lightning hit the um, kite that Benjamin Franklin was flying and the electricity did come down the piece of string and, you know, and burnt... Benjamin Franklin to death and melted his brain. You know, that's what actually happened. He didn't really have a laptop. He died on the spot there. And um, another guy came along and pretended to be Benjamin Franklin from then on and put on the wig and um, and claimed all his glories, you know. That's what really happened. But, um, but point is, um, we say 
we have harnessed electricity and then a religious person comes along from um, you know Greece um, and I shouldn't pick on the Greeks because they're the ones I think that have really invented si the idea of science. I think science comes from the Greeks. Science comes from other places too. Science comes from Babylon. Science comes from India. Science comes from indigenous Australia. If you looked hard enough, you'll find science came from anywhere. But I, I'm more familiar with the science that came from the Greeks, you know, arising from the idea of doubt, you know, as... Uh, Put forward by Socrates, doubt everything that you think you know, you know. But let's say there was a Greek who was determined that Zeus makes electricity. All right. Um, and, you know, um, and this fake Benjamin Franklin says, I have harnessed electricity and it's a natural property of the universe, you know. Um, um, you know, a small n natural, small p property of the small u universe and um and that's and it's a very it's a scientifically explainable phenomenon you know and the religious greek person from prior to socrates says no 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 zeus is throwing it down and um throwing lightning bolts at you and um and it blew up your uh that tree next to you your favorite peppercorn tree um it blew up that tree next to you because you swore you, you said a swear word yesterday and he's punishing you all right that sort of thing and then the scientist says no you know no we think we're harnessing electricity here you know forget zeus for a minute um in fact i've gone a little bit further i've worked out you know that electricity you know the clouds are rubbing together and making that um lightning bolt and that evaporation of water is making the clouds and you know and the clouds are raining into the rivers and there's a bit of a cycle going on there and I can completely understand that I can completely understand that from my foggy perspective in without reference to any you know divine intervention you know and um, the ancient Greek guy you know from before Socrates says no it's Zeus you're wrong and the scientist said look you just stick with your Zeus thing and I'm going to stick with my thing because it's useful for me. And they said, in what way is it useful? And they said, well, ta-da, look at this, an iPhone. And they said, oh, what's that? It's an iPhone. How did you, how did you make that? Well, because, um, you know, I just kept working on the idea of um, harnessing electricity and one thing led to another and here I have got an iPhone. Yay, verily, you know. And the other guy said, gee, that's great, actually. Listen, I'm going to stick with my Zeus idea, but can I have one of those iPhones? Sure, you know, I'll put you on a plan, you know. Um, all right, and you sign up on a, you know, and the religious guy signs up on a plan, and voila, the religious guy has got an iPhone. But he's still religious, and he still believes Zeus is throwing down those thunderbolts, uh, lightning bolts, and um, but he's also using the iPhone at the same time. Um, and the scientist gets to be the scientist and he says, all right, you know. The scientist is happy because he just got rich. You know, and this is kind of, the Western world had this experience for a while, it got rich, you know, because of science. Um, but most of the other world, the rest of the world was still being very religious. You know, this is just after the enlightenment, as we call it. And the Western world got rich and the rest of the world was still believing in Zeus and, their, and these thunderbolts and all or variations of that. And, um, and suddenly the West was rich and created technologies um, 
and being humans um, had all this power afforded to them by wealth and technology and all that sort of thing and you know developed up their political systems as a result and all that sort of stuff and then being humans um, absolutely smashed the rest of the planet smashed the rest of the planet into submission yeah they you know and I've argued I won't get into it you know I think there were um, reasons of geography and climate that um, uh, in, uh, that um, inspired those humans to create this level of science technology um, which didn't you know it's, and, and there were other places on the planet where the climate and geography and so on were not inspiring those humans to do that sort of activity but were inspiring those people to do some other sort of activity um, all of which meant that um, the Europeans in particular got a jump on the rest of the world you know that's science you know science actually gave them an edge um, and because they're nasty you know Europeans are you know, just like Africans are nasty and indigenous Australians are nasty and everybody's nasty. But the point is the Europeans got a chance to act out on its nastiness because it had a technological edge on this occasion. There were other times in history where other cultures had a, an edge for other reasons, you know what I mean? Um, and they got nasty too. You know, but this time the Europeans got to be nasty and my goodness, they got nasty. And you know what, because they had a technological edge at that, you know, for that little window of time in history, it is a small window, we're only talking fairly recently, so we've only had a small time in history when Europeans have, you know, got an edge. You know, that's changing now, I think, you know. I, I, you know, it really looks like the Chinese are starting to get an edge now. I think they're powering further ahead than us, you know, they've grabbed you know, and by us, I mean Europeans, you know, apologise for being a European, well, I can't, you know, I could do a Michael Jackson, if you like, and, you know, turn African, because uh, I do originally come from Africa, what are you talking about, you are appropriating our culture, oh, oh, I don't know what to do now, I'm getting very confused, you told me to not be a European, no, you are a European, you can't do anything about it, you are a bad person, that's the way Naz thinks, I think, who's Naz? You'd have to listen to her previous episode. My goddaughter has talk, been talking to me about Naz. This is now a stream of consciousness episode all of a sudden, you know, because I'm bouncing around, you know. I don't think you can keep up with this. Even I can't. And Naz, um, he, I've been, you know, she has fed me some of Naz's lyrics. Who's Naz? Naz is a rapper. He's an African-American rapper, you know. And Naz is, um, oh, she showed, look, the song she showed me, that Naz has written, um, all are along the lines of everyone who has, you know, all, everyone who has uh, dark skin, I think it is, anyone who has even any dark skin in their skin, we must unite and smash the whites, you know. I think that's, that's been the um, lyric, you know, that's been the meanings be, um, behind the rap songs I've heard from Naz so far, you know, so... You know, uh, I said to my goddaughter, oh, you remember Gandhi? And she said, I remember Gandhi. He was pretty yogic. She says, she's pretty yogic, my goddaughter. And I said, yeah, Gandhi, you know, an eye for an eye and the whole world goes blind. 
you know. And then, but then Naz might say, "Oh, that's all very well for you to say because you just got lucky and you're living a life of privilege." And I said, "Yeah, that's right." But I still think that you know, if you just if you do what to me what I did to you, well, that'll just continue the cycle. And he'll say, "Well, yes, but you know, that you're you know that's not fair because you've just had a good time, and now I don't get to have a good time." And I said, "You know." What are you asking, says Naz. And I said, well, you know, let's all live in harmony. And he said, well, that's not fair, you know, because, um, and I can't, and, you know, the, the world economy is stacked against me already anyway. It's not fair. I don't understand, blah, blah, blah. And we'll never get anywhere. The whole world will go blind. You know, all I know is if we are, Naz is asking for an I, for an I, I think. He might be a Jew, you know. Um, and what is Naz? You know, he doesn't know himself, maybe, from where, because they, you know, the history of slavery as it was in America is such that, you know, where you come from in Africa is erased, you know, you're, and all you've got left is to try and identify according to your skin colour, you know, so and that's the white people's fault, that's the Europeans' fault for that. All right, let's get back to science, you know. Um, and so... In my foggy idea of science, yes, I've got a whole lot of small T truths. And um, science is the art of seeing what you can detect with your blunt instruments that um, have been given to you by your professor or by God. One and the same thing, maybe. Your professor with a God complex. you know, Or maybe it's God with a professor complex, you know. And um, so, you've been given a toolbox, and it's full of blunt instruments, your sight, your hearing, and all that sort of thing, and you've gone out and you've measured as many things as you can about the world, and you have found this to be quite motivating, for it has, pres it, oh, that, that, that activity has produced for you an iPhone, you know, which you really like. And the religious guy says, I'm not into science at all, but I will buy an iPhone off you. And you became rich, you know, by selling so many iPhones. You did. Um, and you are now rich. And um, you've got an edge on that religious guy. You know, but there might come a time in history further down the track where religion might give that guy an edge back. And science might not be so useful, you know when the big army, when the religious armies appear on the horizon using all the tanks and the aircraft and the aircraft carriers and all that sort of stuff that science has found. And then the religious armies, you know, paint crosses on all their military equipment and then come and use it against you and smash you to pieces. But they've got all this machinery because it was, they did buy it. It was useful. They liked it. Um, and then they use this machinery and their power, and then it all shifts again, you know. And Babylon rises again, and Babylon grabs all the um, inventions of science and then uses it against Europe, and they had it coming, said Naz. I actually think Naz might have had a point when he wrote those rap songs. Um, let me think about that for a second. Uh, all right. Um, 
Okay, so, uh, all right, all through history, mobs have been doing bad things to other mobs. You know, each time a mob gets an edge, it does bad things to a, another mob who hasn't got that edge. All right, that's happened a long, for a long time. So I suppose that is uh, a, a vicious cycle, you know. Um, of people not working together, but mobs just trying to claw their way to the top, like the law of the jungle. You know, I suppose that's the way it's always been. Um, you know, and Babylon rising. You know, Babylon. Babylon invented science. Those guys are fantastic. And um, Babylon invented mathematics. You know, I like... And Babylon invented writing. Babylon invented numbers which they got from India but they invented them anyway because everyone forgot that they came from India uh, Babylon, the Babylonians didn't tell anybody they said ah this is um, Arabic numerals you know Arabic oh no that's a different mob is it I get confused between the Semites and the uh, Arabs sometimes alright but Naz might have had a point let me think about this so all through history, it's been mob eat mob, you know, like dog eat dog. All right. Um, and it's, you know, and there's been slave masters and slaves, but nobody's wanted to get rid of slavery. Um, well, sometimes, yes. Um, I, 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 I get a bit hazy about when slavery was first knocked off, you know, but I think it was started to get knocked off permanently um, with... Um, yeah, I th did it st is this because I'm English that I think Wilberforce and his, you know, uh, his lot started the ball rolling? You know, yeah, I do know. I do know about Cyrus the Great. He he set all the slaves free, but did he did he abolish slavery? You know, I don't know. I really, really don't. You know, maybe he just set all the slaves free because he could. Maybe he got rich. Maybe he was a nice guy and he said set all the slaves free. I'm not sure what he did. Um, now I did hear because I do, I do, you know, I do sort of listen to ancient. I've always been inter interested in ancient history, and I listen to ancient history podcasts these days, and I've always sort of read about ancient history. Uh, oh, but do you know, since um, podcasting, you know, since I got switched on to podcasts, I reckon I've learned four thousand times as much as I ever knew reading books. I think I read books for um, the first thirty years of my reading life and learnt a tiny bit and now I've been switched on to podcasts and I've learnt ten times that much in one and a half years. It's amazing. I'm, I'm into oral history. I'm an oral guy. Um, I don't take in as much through my eyes. I take more in through my hearing, I think. Um, when I'm listening, it seems, to, it seems to hit me better. When I'm speaking, it hits me even better than that which doesn't make much sense, because how can you teach yourself something? Maybe you can, but that's another episode. Right, so Naz might have had a point. Let's, yeah, so slavery. So did um, Cyrus the Great, did he abolish slavery? Well, if he did, it didn't stick. And um, I did hear once that, um, you know, the evidence of Cyrus the Great, because he was a very notable setter of slaves free kind of guy. Um, I, I did read somewhere that there's not that much evidence that he was into the abolishment of slavery per se as an institution, but he, you know, he set the slaves free. I, he's very famous. You know, I'm a Catholic, so I go to church. Um, 
and the only unbeliever there, you know, uh, and, um, but I'm a believer, um, and I'm an unbeliever at the same time, that's too hard to explain, and, uh, because faith and science are not in competition with each other, do you know people of faith can be into science as well, it's not, a, it's not a conflict, you know, you can, you know, you can, um, you can believe in all the truths of faith, according to the rules of faith, and you can believe in all the small t truths of science, according to the rules of science, if you want, you know. There are plenty of people with very nice faith um, who are scientists at the same time, and um, on the one hand, they know that water is only, you know, hydrogen and oxygen, uh, but then they go to um, lords, lords, you know, lords, um, not lords, the cricket ground, lords, the, you know, the river, and, uh, is it a river or a town? I lose track. And, um, and, you know, they bring up, they bring back their little bottle of water, you know, that, um, that the guy selling the lords water filled up from the tap. <laughs> uh, but, um, you know, and they believe in it, you know, and they kind of know that the guy probably filled it up with the tap, um, the tap that's not even connected to, you know, it's connected to the um, recycling plant, you know, the, the, the grey water, you know, clarification of water plant, you know, the ex-sewerage, they probably know it's sewerage, um, but, you know, the scientist comes back and he says, no, you know, I choose to believe, you know, I have no, I choose to believe. You can do that, it's not a conflict, I really don't think, science and faith, and not in conflict, you know. Um, but um, but he knows that, you know, Lord's water probably came from two clouds rubbing together, you know, and that it got all its properties from there. Um, he probably knows that. But then, you know, he brings back his little flask, <laughs> gets a bit thirsty, swigs half and keeps half and puts it on his mantelpiece at home and brings his house luck, you know. That's the way it works. Um, but I have no problem with that. Anyway, so um, Cyrus the Great, you know, there's no real uh, evidence, I think. I think it was just put on a... Now, I, you know, this is what I heard. It's, there's just a reference to it in the stele. Um, and, um, and I don't know if stele is plural or singular. Um, oh, here comes my brother. Hang on. Um, we've just landed in Sorrento. So we've had our cars in convoy. I'll, I'll pause that and I'll finish that thought later. Here he comes now. And there he goes. I waited for him, actually. I knew he was coming up behind me, so I want him to go in first so that I'm parked behind him. Speak later. It's later. Okay, Cyrus the Great. Yeah, I was talking about him. Yes, uh, I go to church. I mentioned that. Uh, and uh, we hear about Cyrus the Great a lot in church, in the readings. He's very famous. He set the Jews free. Uh, so we hear about that in church. Uh, the Jews, you know, they were often slaves too. Uh, but, um, you know, but slavery essentially stayed there as an issue. Now, uh, wait a minute. The Jews were the slaves of the Babylonians and the Egyptians and Cyrus the Great, he, surely he took the, he took over, you know, he, be, he became the boss of the Babylonians, I suspect, you know, that became part of the Persian Empire, uh, you know, Cyrus the Great, just before Alexander the Great, you know. 
Um, a lot of grates back then. And uh, but these were genuine grates. Um, Alexander softened up the world. Uh, Cyrus the Great softened up the world first, and then Alexander came in, you know, into a softened up world and um, and softened them up a little bit more and introduced them to togas. And then uh, and then later on, uh, later on the Romans came into a very softened up world and uh, and and saw that the people. Uh, already knew about togas, you know, and so, and so that they, so the people said, "Oh, yeah, we've been here before. We'd better just let these Romans in." I don't think it was just like that. I don't think it was quite like that. But um, okay, the Romans didn't go as far as Alexander did. Uh, but Cyrus the Great, uh, look, he set the slaves free. I know this because I heard it in church. I'm a man of faith. I'm a man of science. Okay, back to science. Um, back to politics, uh, because science led to politics. You know, because science, science led to politics. Science altered the culture of Europe. Um, you know, oh, yeah, yeah. I think, I think, you know, culture, culture. I say culture, you know, because I'm an Aussie. Do you, are you English? Do you say culture? You know, do you say culture? You know, like you wear your clothes, couture, and your culture. Part of your culture is to have couture. Uh, I don't know. Uh, but, um, now let's, uh, you know, science. Now, there was a time when Copernicus worked out or hypothesised that we all, we are going around the sun and that we aren't at the centre of the universe, and that altered the culture. Um, you know, and then Galileo. He uh, got a telescope out, you know, technology, you know, everything goes at once, technology, enlightenment, science, you know, science, um, philosophy, all sort of cascades along at once, you know. And um, Galileo got a telescope out and found out that Copernicus was right because he saw moons going around um, Jupiter, you know. And um, moons go around Venus too, don't they? Because Captain Cook, he was an enlightenment man and he came into the Pacific here, you know, down our way. I live in Australia. And he was looking, he came down here to look at the transit of the moons of Venus, you know. So it all cascades science, you know, the British, uh, their whole culture and the Europeans, the culture was altered. Uh, by science, it's all about science, and before that, it was all about faith. You know, science and faith, faith and science, science and faith. And um, but science um, altered the culture, you know, because um, th th that was a huge mind shift for Europeans. Uh, just this discovery by Copernicus, uh, you know, ratified by Galileo. Um, and the culture changed, and therefore the politics changed, you know, of the Europeans. And the politics were such that they came up with new political systems arising from this enlightenment that arose from the change of culture in their heads, which arose from science, which, are, you know, it all just come, it all comes together. Anyway, what happened then was um, the Europeans got an edge. I mentioned that before. Um, and and they developed political systems that gave them an additional edge, and it um it most certainly it most certainly and it wasn't you know their 
it wasn't that they were superior humans, I'm, I, I feel sure. I feel sure. You know, you might be a Nazi and you feel sure of the opposite, you know. I'm not here to stop people, people being Nazis. Be Nazis, you know. If you're a Nazi, stay a Nazi. I'm not here to change you. Um, but I feel that humans are humans. My brother once said there's been not enough time since we all split into different groups. There hasn't been enough time for us to evolve into different things. We're all the same. Okay, uh, but he's got the benefit of, you know, hindsight. Um, but, you know, people like Captain Cook didn't have any English back then because, you know, my brother knows about DNA. So, you know, we've got a bit of an advantage in the 21st century. Uh, but um, the politics of Europe changed. Uh, the culture changed. They looked around and they saw that they um, had superior technology in Europe. Now, Geoffrey Blaney argued that that was a, a kind of a stroke of luck on behalf, on, on the part of the Europeans, because the geography of Europe is all left and right. You know, if you look at a map across, you know, similar uh, temperature zones, you know, um, latter, you know latitudes, um, it's all left and right, whereas places like Africa and America, South America are like, uh, they're all up and down. You know, and places like Australia and China are more like islands. Um, yeah, and, and, um, and other places are too small um, to get, 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 the, you know, get the competition going across similar latitudes between many, many, many nations, you know, get that competition going. And the geography of Europe was all such that um, there came a point in time where they were competing heavily, you know, in war and also uh, collaborating heavily too and exchanging um, all precious gifts, no, <laughs> exchanging culture and all that sort of thing, you know, um, fighting and loving and fighting and loving and, and, they, and it just all took off you know, and in the form of science and a few other things, you know. Um, there was a time when, when that was happening around the Mediterranean and that area took off, you know. Um, North Africa and, um, and north of the Mediterranean. You know, oh, sorry, the, you know, the south of um, France <laughs> um, and Italy and Greece and Persia across to India. You know, that was the, that was the, um, that was the area that had the edge. Um, at one stage, you know, Babylon and all that sort of stuff, and Egypt, you know, that was an island too. Egypt was an island as well. Lots of islands in the world. Um, I don't mean islands surrounded by water. You know, islands can be surrounded by desert as well. They're still islands. China's an island surrounded by desert and water. Um, so, um, but Europe had this sort of advantage at a certain point in history that gave it a technological advantage, and Naz might have a point. I'm getting back to that. And... Um, and Europe got an edge. No, they got much more of an edge. They got a massive jump, massive jump on the rest of the world and just powered ahead. And they looked around and they said, gee, our superior is massively um, superior. Yeah, our technology is massively superior to everybody else's and our science is massively superior to everybody else's. And um, our skin color happens to be white and their skin color happens to be not white. Now, if I put those two together, my logic, you know, now, you can criticise um, Europeans for having this sort of logic, but who doesn't make wrong connections in ancient history, you know? Because remember, um, people saw thunderbolts coming, you know, f um, lightning 
bolts coming from the sky, and they said, well, that makes sense. Zeus threw them, you know. So, you know, be fair, you know, like back in the ancient times, were they supposed to guess that it was clouds rubbing together? You know, that's not fair. Um, and the uh, Europeans, and I'm not being an apologist for Europeans, I'm just trying to scratch my head and figure it out, you know. Why did Europeans think they were superior? And they just looked around and um, they saw that, you know, they were a certain look, and then they looked at other lands and they were a different look, and they saw that their own technology, they had the steam engine, you know, and all that sort of stuff, and they had all this philosophy and all these other things that had come across from the Enlightenment. Out of science, science created culture, which created technology, which created blah, blah, you know, and created new political systems, such as, you know, the French Revolution. And that made everyone strong in Europe. And then they used that strength to smash everybody else. And when they went down to Africa, for example, they um, had a scramble for Africa. And this is where Naz might have a point. I'm getting to Naz. And... Europe had a, you know, and often I hear African Americans say that Europeans only got um, rich because they went and stripped Africa out. Now they did strip Africa out. They stripped a lot of things, out, other things out too. They stripped India too, um, and they stripped Australia. They stripped a lot of countries, you know. Um, so England stripped, and they stripped a lot out of America before the, <laughs> before their own kind said stop stripping this country because we actually want to stay here um you know, boston tea party and all that and they kicked the english out and uh-huh, the english got their comeuppance there but the english you know knocked off the english uh-huh, the, 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 um nothing like when you know your best enemy is yourself okay <coughs> um so naz might have a point on getting to that but um i don't think um that Europe essentially got powerful by stripping out Africa and other places. It got strong before that, and that enabled them to strip out Africa. And that's how. And then they got ten times as strong. They got ten times as wealthy, and ten to you know, wealth brings strength and all that sort of stuff. You know, pays for the science, and um, and then um, and and that's how it went. Now. Now, as I really do think that once the Europeans got into this superior position, they looked around and said, we happen to have got superior, and that makes us superior. Now, I'm not an apologist for Europeans thinking like that. That is, um, that's Nazi talk, that is. That's Nazi talk. You know, you might have come from Africa. You know, once we, you know, there was a guy once, my brother was um, with him, and they were watching out of Africa, you know. Um, which was some sort of DNA-type, genetic-type program, you know, that was tracing how we all emerged from Africa, you know, from apes. And, you know, my brother was sitting next to someone who I think, you know, might not have complained about Hitler all that loudly, you know, if he had been back in those times. Um, But he said, and he just leaned over to my brother, and he said, you might have come out from out of Africa, but I didn't. And my brother went uh-oh. But that's the way it went, you know. Um, but, uh, so, yeah, all right. So Europeans, um, they got this kind of, you know, which almost seems logical, you know, but they made some wrong connections, but they didn't know they were making some wrong connections. And they said, we are superior. And this is where Naz might have a point. And Europe got the upper hand, just like once upon a time, 
Egypt had the upper hand, and Babylon had the upper hand at another at another point in time. And Greece had another an upper hand at another point in time, and China has had upper hands many times. And India, you know, lots of places have had an upper hand. Um, Rome had the biggest upper hand ever, and um, and the Europeans looked around and said, "We are superior." And we happen to be wise, you know, because, you know, there was a vitamin D deficiency there somewhere along the line in Europe and or something like that, you know, and they weren't toasted. They were anti-toasted and they were untoasted. And um, the Europeans looked around and said, that's because we are white, that we are superior. You know, now, you know, I happen to think that they got superior through a couple of strokes of luck you know, of timing and all that sort of stuff. That just happens to be me. You can completely disagree with that. Couldn't care less. Stay a Nazi if you want. Be a Nazi, you know. Um, uh, Hitler, he was a good speaker. Um, used to practice in front of a mirror. And uh, like a like a teenage girl these days, um, practicing in the dance moves in front of the mirror or the selfies, you know. Uh, Hitler did selfies and then took it out on stage. And uh, it was a big hit. Um, but, um, anyway, so the Europeans looked around and they said, you know, um, we are superior. Okay, so then this is where Naz might have a point. And then the Europeans got a chance to set up a world economy at some point in time, a global economy, a globalised economy, you know. Um, and I don't think it's a big stretch of the imagination to say that that global economy um, is rigged in Europe's favour. Come on, what were they going to do? Rig it in favour of, you know, um, um, pick a country. Rig it in favour of the Congo. They had two choices. We've got a choice here. And, the, you know, the EU got together and said, we've got a choice here. We're going to create a world economy. Will we... Will we will we tweak it in favour of the European sort of countries, you know, like um, the ones that are now European countries, you know, because we the sun never sets on us now. So let's call that Canada, the US, um, Australia and New Zealand um, and Europe, you know. Shall we rig the economy in favour of those guys, the ones with the white skin? as we call it, which, you know, which more like freckles and pasty skin, but whatever. Um, will we rig it in their favour or will we, will we rig it in favour of the Congo? And they tossed a coin and went for the white guys. And this is where Naz might have a point. Now, right now, my instinct is to say um, that science gave the white guys an advantage and... It did give them a, a very significant edge and that that they drew what I call a wrong conclusion. And what by wrong, I don't mean morally wrong, I mean logically wrong, that it was to do with their skin colour. They drew a conclusion that that made them superior. Um, and... Um, and they rigged the world economy. And not only that, they didn't drop their 
their deep down feelings of superiority, you know. And that feeling of superiority manifests itself in many ways. Sometimes it's out and out racism, you know. I'm a racist, actually. You know, I haven't told you that before. Yes, I have. But I'm a racist deep down. I just don't know it, all right? But I am a racist. I, I'm privileged. I know that much. I'm a, one of those guys. In fact, you know, I get a very uneasy feeling just this jokey way I even do these podcasts. So relaxed I am. And I'm, I'm sitting in a beautiful place here in Sorrento in Victoria. This is just heaven here. You know, what's going on, you know? I should not be doing these. It's amoral me doing the podcast, even in this jaunty tone. You know, I don't like myself. And I actually mean that. If I was doing this, if if I was actually listening to this from a moral perspective, I'd be hating myself, you know. But luckily I'm not. I'm, thinking, I'm, I'm speaking from an amoral perspective. And you might be thinking, you might be hating me listening to this. I'm sure Naz would be. I actually think Naz would be hating me listening to this. I don't think he's ever going to listen to me. I hated his songs too, to tell the truth. Um, so I'd see even, you know, as I listened to his songs, I hated them. You know, I just thought, oh, come on. You know, he was claiming Egypt to be part of his culture just because the Egyptians might have had slightly darker skin. And he's definitely not Egyptian. I think he, Naz, you know, he, I think he, he says himself he's descended from probably West African slaves and all that sort of stuff. And he's saying, oh, brown people and black people will unite. We were once Kemet, you know, we were, we were pharaohs and all that sort of stuff. So you were not. You're a completely different culture. Go and ask an Egyptian, you know, if they want to share their culture with you. I don't think that's the case. I could be wrong. But Naz might have a point anyway, I'll get to that. Anyway, so I'd be hating myself. But then again, if you were anyone else other than Naz, you know, if you're a fellow European and you're the sort of person who, you know, was crying and crying for the refugees when that little kid Aylan died and all that sort of stuff, you know, Elaine or whatever his name was, that poor little kid, um... And um, you were crying and you had your candles down there at Federation Square and, you know, all that sort of stuff. And you were swaying and crying and all that sort of stuff. And I'm seeing you now all the time and you're not giving the refugees another thought, are you? Well, some of you are still, but a lot of you aren't. I see you down, you know, El Fresco with your lattes, smiling gaily and um, exchanging, you know, pleasantries with your friends um, down in my local coffee, uh, cafe strip. We're all hypocrites. Um, so I'm just, I'm just a bit out and out. Um, putting it out in the open in a fairly blatant way, which is actually not very sensitive, but, ah, oh, you know, there's degrees. All right, Naz. Now, the... Um, so, um, I am tempted sometimes to sort of think, oh, come on, Naz, you know, we've had this cycle forever. One mob, mob eat mob, one mob getting on top and then one mob sinking to the bottom and then the, the other mob getting a technological edge and that mob getting up and making the other one's slave, you know. And the slave master becomes a slave and the slave becomes a slave master, but the cycle isn't broken, you know. And I te I'm tempted to go with Gandhi and say, you know, eye for an eye and the whole world goes blind, you know. I'm starting to think like that, you know. I get feeling like that. And then I read uh, lyrics from a Naz song and he's saying, browns and blacks, you know, even if you hated each other back in Africa, actually his lyrics suggest that it was that um I, I can't remember his exact words but he said back in africa we made happiness you know we were the happiness people 
Um, we all loved each other. Read his lyrics. You think I'm joking. He actually says that. Back in Africa, we were, you know, we were the love makers, you know. We, we, we were the happiness makers. And, um, and we were stripped out of Africa. And, you know, because we were just resources being stripped out of Africa. We were human resources getting stripped out of Africa. Just like the Congo was getting stripped by the Belgians of its minerals and all that sort of thing. And we were stripped and we were taking, taken over to America. And we were love makers before then. We all loved each other. You think I'm joking. That, that's, in the, that's in his lyrics, you know. And he's claiming Egypt for himself. Um, he's saying that just because the Egyptians had brown skin, um, everyone who has brown skin worldwide gets to share the glories of Egypt and to be proud of that, you know. So, you know, and I honestly think Naz, and I understand where he's coming from, his identity is uh, all wrapped up in his skin colour because, um, because of the evils of slavery, his, uh, let's say, cultural sort of mob identity was erased by the whites. You know, the whites um, created a white identity. And in opposition to that, the, you know, the, the African-Americans created a black identity. Uh, but it does seem to uh, be that people like Naz and other African-Americans have um, this sense that uh, um, uh, that all people who have got similar skin colour should unite. God knows what happens when, you know, a black man and a white man marry. Are they supposed to fight? You know, I don't know what happens there in the Naz world. But anyway, I'm, te and, you know, and I'm tempted to think, you know, sometimes I'm tempted to go with Gandhi. Gandhi, you know. Um, and say an eye for an eye and the whole world goes blind. And I'm sort of say, Naz, listen to Gandhi, you know, and, um, and I want to be grumpy at Naz, and I want to say, and I find myself thinking this, you know, I want to say, listen, we've got to break the cycle sometime, and all start working together, and stop thinking in terms of skin colour and all that sort of stuff, and he said, oh, how convenient for you, you know, I can imagine Naz saying that, how convenient for you to time that for just when you were on top, you know, the minute you get on top, you know, it's like everyone's getting a turn to smash all the other mobs and you get right on top and you have an absolute rigged world economy and that's the time you choose. All right, everyone, let's stop fighting. You know, and I sense people like me are like that. And I'm just looking at myself logical more, logically more than morally. I'm sort of saying, all right, what, have we, what are we doing here? And this might be Naz's point. Uh, you Europeans, you know, you're sitting in this little rich sort of seaside town of Sorrento. Um, you Aussie sort of skippy, um, whatever you call yourself, sporty monk type of guy. Um, and you've clawed your way to the top. And um, in the unending cycle of dog eat dog and mob get on top of mob. And as soon as you get on top, you rig the world economy. Um, you institutionalise a system of racism, which, you know, and it is, there is that sitting there. In the, I don't mind saying that. I'm a, you know, I don't mind saying there's racism. I'm not one of those whiteies that say, how dare you call me privileged? I'm not operating out of my white privilege and all that stuff. Of course I'm, but I disagree. I am. This whole pod podcast, the very tone of my voice, the smarmy, the whole thing, 
is um, a product of my social construction and my white privilege and, you know, racism and all sorts of things. And the fact that I just go, I go for jobs every week as a consultant and I get them every time. It's just not fair. And someone like Naz hasn't got a chance against that. Right. So just thinking about trying to walk a mile in Naz's shoes, he says, you sit there in your car talking into your iPad and um, you are saying, let's break the cycle just when you've got the world rigged in your favour. I think that's what Naz's might be, you know, that might be Naz's point, where he's got a good point anyway. You just sit, wait till you've got everything set up so that you've got all the advantages. You rig the entire world economy. You've got everything set up beautifully. You've got an institutionalised set of, um, you know, race, well, racist um, advantages going on such that, um, you know, jobs for the boys and all that sort of thing, it really happens, you know. you got all that set up, and that's the time when you decide to pull the trigger and say, let's stop this vicious cycle of mobs getting on top of mobs, you know, of um, one mob overcoming another mob and then so on and so forth and so on and so forth, you know. You wait till you're on top of the pile... You rig everything where, realistically, in the next 500 years, anyone underneath you hasn't got a chance unless they fight. Um, you rig everything, and just when you've got everything rigged, you say, let's stop fighting. Let's end the cycle. Okay? And Naz might say, and I'm actually really thinking in, from his perspective now, Naz might say, okay, so is this the way it is? Um... We all play happy families now, and we all compete on a even. You know, we all com- we all work together now, do we? And um, where you've got all the advantages, the ho- the whole deck is stacked in your favour. You know, you've given me all the twos and threes and fours in the you know deck of playing cards, and you're holding all the aces and the kings and the queens and the jacks. And you're saying, right, let's all play fair now. Is that what you're saying? You, there, in your car, late at night, in Sorrento. Right, while I'm wherever I am, in really crapsville in America somewhere because I'm a rapper. Well, he might be a multimillionaire, but, you know, he might still have that I'm living in crapsville sort of attitude. Um, He might, you know, but, um, yeah, I know what, I think I know what I'm saying and I think you might know what I'm saying. This is from Naz's perspective. You might be, you might be one of my fellow Europeans and just hating the sound of all this and uh, wishing I would shut up. You know, I probably lost all my progressive um, listeners in the first half of this episode, and now I'm losing all my conservative listeners, and I'm left just by myself one more time and once again. Okay, and on that note, I think that's enough of that episode. Um, it got political in the end, um, but I I didn't uh, express a political opinion one way or another. I actually, I think I expressed one political opinion early in the podcast and then the opposite one later, so I actually haven't come down, you know, I might be a Nazi or a progressive at this point. I might be a fascist or a progressive at this point in time, depending on who you are listening. 
Okay, I might be hated by everyone. Now, I think the dominant uh, part of this episode was to do with science and faith, though, wandering into politics. But science and faith, I think, sit sit down low as fundamental type of types of truths. You know, I'll finish off with a comment of on science and faith, culture and politics. All right. Now, I think, and all these things cycle around, you know, and help each other. But um, I think deep down, um, faith is one kind of way of looking at the world, you know, where you decide what you want to believe and then make the evidence fit, that sort of thing. And that's called theology. And there is a logic to that. I have not got a problem with that. You know, Um, and Alexander believed he was um, the next Achilles, you know, he thought Achilles was real, probably. Um, but because he thought Achilles was real, he had faith in that, that inspired him uh, to do great things instead of just ordinary things. You know, he's not called Alexander the Ordinary. I know that much. You know, he's called Alexander the Great. And his faith probably made him great. Okay, so great does have its benefits. Uh, but then, you know, and I've argued that, faith, faith, um, Faith does bring you benefits, okay? Um, it really does. And I've argued in another sort of episode that Ethiopia has all sorts of, you know, what you might call scientifically absurd beliefs about itself. But because they have faith that those things are true, you know, that they have the original Ark of the Covenant, you know, in Ethiopia at present, and that the Queen of Sheba married king solomon and that they're you know their emperors are descended from those guys you know and that you know that solomon and sheba existed in the first place because the ethiopians have faith in all of these things it makes them feel bigger than they probably are um and that has allowed them to survive through to the 21st century um and they have to they have survived for thousands of years and that's no mean feat and if you did not have faith in hocus pocus really um, and magic, you wouldn't have, be able to survive that long. So what is this core truth here that we're looking at? Well, it's a benefit to yourself. It works for oneself to have faith, you know, on, on, in some ways. But then, you know, and that's a vote for faith. So I'm pro-faith on that level, you know. You could say, Ethiopians, you should have been more scientific, but then they wouldn't exist. All right? So there you go. All right, but then, so faith can be useful. and um, But then science can be useful too, you know. You put aside the faith and you doubt um, that God is um, creating all sorts of natural phenomena like um, electricity and rain and all that sort of stuff by divine intervention. And you say, oh, maybe we, maybe we can find what, you, what we are going to call um, natural reasons for these things where we can work out what's happening via cause and effect sort of processes um, such that divine intervention is not required to explain those things you know um, you know um, you know and the and, and and the priests can say yes but God set it up that way but let's put that aside because it's totally beside the point and then science actually says um, all right, well, faith got us so far. 
um, but it doesn't get us iPhones, you know. And so science constructs a whole set of truths based on experiment, you know, and the scientific method and, you know, trusting the senses, not trusting them as if they're perfect, but saying, listen, um, our senses operate in what we feel is a natural world, so let's measure what our senses are saying and then use those measurements to give ourselves benefits in that sort of, you know, sphere and voila, um, technology, you know, and um, and it works, you know. So you get all sorts of other benefits like iPhones and F-16 fighters, you know, and all that sort of thing, you know, and nuclear energy and all that sort of thing. So you've got faith and science as two different approaches humans can take. They are not in conflict with each other. You can use faith uh, sometimes, you know, probably the, the gold medal approach is to use faith where that's going to serve you well and use science where that's going to serve you well and get a double benefit you know and that would be faith and science but um and prop, perhaps that's a um perhaps that's a, a perfect storm of benefit you know what i mean and maybe the enlightenment sort of captured all of that in europe and maybe that's why europe got so strong it had a sort of potent mix of faith and science you know because i do detect some faith in the way the europeans thought about themselves they had faith that they were superior due to their skin color you know and there was no science in that there was some sort of logic but it was in my opinion a wrong logic you know uh, that i mentioned before um but you know europeans had a certain amount of faith in themselves that they were a superior kind of human being and i think that helped them along um so there was a potent mix of faith and science going on in Europe. Um, and in that sense, faith and science aren't in conflict. Faith and science are working together there, surely. Um, but I, you know, and in summary, the whole episode, I rambled on a lot there because it's late at night and I get rambly when it's late at night. But I think science is the art of... Um, relying on the senses on the senses and our powers of analysis via our intellect so science is a set of truths yeah i'm going to summarize all this i think science is a game in which we agree to trust our senses and to accept things that um that we can observe with our senses and not only that process logically with our senses knowing the limitations of those senses and that is the game of science right and because we live in a sensory world when we play that game it gives us that gives us technologies arising from those science experiments that in turn um, benefit our senses you know so uh, let's say, um, let's say Western medicine, you know, arises from a scientific approach on, of, uh, a scientific, of experimenting with different, um, uh, different treatments, um, ways of, you know, uh, treatments on the human body, you know, and voila, you know, we, 
do experiments and we end up with things like penicillin, you know what I mean, that sort of thing. Okay, so science is a whole game that operate that puts spirituality aside and puts faith aside, just puts them all aside, um, doesn't kill them off, puts them aside and says, let's concentrate on just what our senses are telling us, put the other stuff aside. Um, you know, we're not competing with that other stuff. We're just putting it aside and we're going to see what our senses tell us and just play that game in a bubble. We're going to play that game in a bubble. And it doesn't matter whether we absolutely believe that Jesus turned water into wine. We're going to put that aside, that belief, and if we can't measure it, we'll, we, we, will, we will not accept that within the rules of our game. You know, we will discard that as an untested thing. So, you know, you can be the absolute, totally believe, you know, um, when you go to Mass, that Jesus turned water into wine. But when you go to work as a scientist during the week, you put that aside because that's not the game you're playing at the moment. It's got nothing to do with denying Jesus or anything like that. You are putting it aside because your job as a scientist, you've put your hand up and you've said, listen, um, I am not denying Jesus, but I'm putting that belief, you know, I'm putting Jesus aside, you know, um, and this is where I think some of the literal sort of the evangelists are at a bit of a disadvantage because they can't do that. You know, the Israel falals of this world, they're a bit at a bit of a disadvantage. But I think the high-functioning human is able to put something aside, play the game of science Monday to Saturday, and then say, righto, I'm going to have a break from science, and then on Sunday go to Mass. And boy, that's awfully close to what I do in life, if you're curious, by the way, and I'm talking in real life, I kind of do that. All right, I go to Mass and I engage, I really do. You know, I listen to, I love the sermons. I wait for the sermons. I get a bit bored. Sometimes I, I, I sneak my earphones in for the rest of Mass and listen to a podcast, but I always take the earphones out, you know, um, and... Um, and during the sermons, I listen up, you know, because I love listening to Paul's letters to the Greeks. They're my favourites. Okay, now, um, so I think that's the difference between science and faith. They're two different games, like cricket and football are different games. Cricket and football aren't in competition. We play cricket in the summer or we play football in the winter, you know. Doesn't everybody on the planet? So there you go. All right. Science and faith, not in conflict, in my opinion. The podcast you just heard was made using Anchor. Ever thought about making your own podcast? Anchor makes it really easy for anyone to get started. It's a one-stop shop for recording, hosting, and distributing podcasts. Best of all, it's 100% free. Sign up now at anchor.fm slash new. That's anchor.fm slash new to get started.